Hello, 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 and welcome to Oral Fixation. I am Joey Nolfi, the RuPaul's Drag Race reporter at Entertainment Weekly, and in general, just an all-around icon and legend. And I am here to tell you that Drew and Andy unfortunately can't be here today. I am the lip-sync assassin I'm subbing in for them, so you'll have to deal with me for the next three hours. No, I'm just kidding. Um, allow me to introduce myself. I am here as the esteemed guest for the Cycle 7 finale, and I love that this podcast is esteemed enough to call these cycles like America's Next Top Model instead of seasons, but that's besides the point. And on this episode, I'm joining Andy and Drew to dish on all things Drag Race. And as a reminder, any music featured in this episode is used solely for the purposes of view and critique, so we hope you enjoy listening. Uh, just to be this safe. is recording too. We're covering. We are uh, covering all bases, my love. Okay. I, yeah. Oh I've, my god. Um, I've I <laughs> effectively driven twenty kilometers to another house to record this from, so I could record a backup. So we've oh all made sacrifices, Jerry. God, this is insane. This is truly like I feel mm. like Celine Dion. Like you guys are like rolling <laughs> out the red carpet treatment for me, ma- making sure that everything is recording and in tip-top mm. shape, so that we don't miss this. It's what is I'm sure is going to be an iconic recording. Some might say that um, we should have done all of this the first time round, but, but we like to live on the edge. But also, as we've learned, you know, sometimes first time around doesn't work out. You leave, you regroup, you come back stronger. And I feel like this episode is our, this is our All Stars episode, you know? It really is. Yes, mm. if we should have waited 11 years because, mm. I mean, that's what it took for Miss Kylie Sonique Love right. to come or, with the crowd, so... <laughs> will we be a Kylie, or will we be a Milk? How will this go? Or will we be a Silky, and Ooh, I just slay this entire true. episode? <laughs> and, and we just treat and, it as just one great episode that <laughs> we, all, we all benefit from. But mostly me. But mostly you, mostly you. Well, look, before we get into it, before we get into it, I think straight off the bat, we do need to acknowledge for the listeners that this is our second time around. So about two weeks ago, we recorded with Joey, Joey Nolfi. And actually, perhaps I'll just give you your introduction again, Joey, just to contextualize this. But Oh, lovely, yes. But we, we did record an entire episode, which... Andy and I had in the can, and then um, at the very end, it was the face crack of the century when Joey realised that he had not been recording the whole time. It was Shangela finding out she's not in the top two. Oh, it was you make it sound like it was deliberate. It was, it was a technical no, issue. You, Naomi Smalls, dust, <laughs> Joey. That was <laughs> life's not fair. Yes, it was truly life's not fair, but not in an I did it on purpose. Life's not fair way. No. Oh my god. But yeah, that was bad. Before we before we crack on, I I will just introduce Joey. So many of you might actually <laughs> know Joey from the internet. He is a prolific drag race tweeter, a prolific Gaga 
tweeter. And sometimes those two worlds collide. But most importantly, Joey is a digital writer for American celebrity news juggernaut Entertainment Weekly. His work covers the full gamut of pop culture, from predicting Oscar nominations to hosting iconic roundtable interviews, including one with the team behind The Devil Wears Prada. Yes, Joey spoke to Meryl Streep, Anne Hathaway, Emily Blunt, Stanley Tucci, and Patricia Field all at the same time. But most importantly for this discussion, Joey serves as EW's Drag Race correspondent. Whether he's breaking stories on all things drag, interviewing eliminated queens, or co-hosting EW's binge podcast series dedicated to Drag Race, one of my favorite podcasts of all time, there's probably no one on this planet more qualified to have a discussion about the show and its impact, apart perhaps from Merle Ginsburg. So Joey, we want to welcome you. And straight off the bat, we want to ask, did your father fuck Marlena Dietrich? It truly, like, that's not fair. This is where the second time around is working to your advantage because I told you anytime somebody references that goddamn Tammy Brown moment, I cannot keep my shit together. So that was unfair starting with that. Sorry, I had to I had to do it. But that is the that's the the last of the goopery, I promise. Joe, we're so the, the 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 main thing that um, Andy and I said, we were obviously gutted when we lost the the first episode, but we both said we, we we both said we could have spoken to Joey for hours and hours and hours about a show that we absolutely love. So it's it's just such a treat to get back on the mic with you. Um, as we mentioned previously, I'm a huge fan of your binge podcast where you recap every season of, of Drag Race. It's been such a kind of a lovely little piece of pop culture. Um, Thank you. You're my only fan, if I recall, <laughs> is what I was calling you. My only fan. Well, and then you lost me for a minute there, but I'm back. I am yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> I know you hated me for the last two weeks. <laughs> Your face, oh my god, everybody who's listening, if you could have seen Drew's face when I was like, uh... <laughs> Uh, that was just a practice run, guys. Um, your face was, I mean, it's still burned into my brain, so. But everything does happen for a reason. And, um, you know, a lot has happened since we last recorded in just those short two weeks. You referenced uh, just a short while ago, Joey, one of my favorite All-Stars winners ever. And I know that's a very early thing to call, but I, I know it in my heart. I know she's one of my all-time favorites. She has been crowned Miss Kylie Sinek Love on All-Stars 6. But more importantly, more importantly than that, just last night, I found myself in a fever dream like no other, which was the clip recap package from RuPaul's Drag Race season one, which was about seven episodes in before they crowned the winner. I very rarely watch season one. You know, I've maybe watched it twice in the last 10 years. Me too. Um, Mm. And I was tripping, like... I, I cannot implore people enough as a long-time Drag Race fans to go back and watch that because the the foreshadowing to the future, the references to queens, when they do that thing where they show the queens who um, re- uh, auditioned but didn't get on, you've obviously always got Alaska there, you've got Pandora, Raven, Legends. Haven't you Legends. also got, um, I feel like you've got Alexis Michelle and maybe even Mrs. Kasha Davis on one of the very yes. early, like... yes. Wait, I truly don't think I have seen this specific episode. I'd never seen it before. I really hadn't seen it. Because every time I try to watch season one, I get to like episode three and I think, fuck it, I'm just going to watch All Stars 1 because there I get my favorite season (laughs) one queens. Well, no, I watched... 
I definitely watched all. I mean, I've seen season one a few times, but maybe if it's like the are you trying? It's like a standalone episode that has like recap clips and stuff. Because if it was that and I was watching it for binge, I just skipped over right. it. Right, like a countdown to the crown. Yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just bad. skipped over that. Yeah. So I have to go back and watch that because if there is audition footage of Alexis Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I love Alexis Michelle, don't get me wrong. I love Miss Alexis Michelle. I love Alexis She's Michelle. the original candy producer muse. Yeah, she mm. really is. <laughs> she Tamar, knows. have you seen the show? <laughs> she knows every inch of that set. She knows how to... There is nothing she more knows terrifying the key than the of like... Godson's yeah. name. <laughs> Imagine Alexis Michelle being like a stage director in like a Broadway musical. Does that just not send a chill down your spine? Oh my gosh. But Alexis Michelle would absolutely be recording on a podcast. So, you know, you get certain things with professionalism. <laughs> oh my God, wait, okay, I'm going to double check just to make sure I'm still recording. Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> Eight minutes and 32 seconds into my recording. We did it, still Joe. Going. We did it. <laughs> yes. I think I'd like to um, kick off the conversation, though, Andy. I think it's 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 really fortuitous that we did have these two weeks to see our all-stars queen get crowned. And I think by this point, if people don't know that it was Kylie Cynic Love, then um, that's on them. Um, but uh, it really, it truly was a drag race watershed moment to crown our first US trans queen. I know that Thailand um, also has um, a, a transgender winner, but... Yes, Miss Anjali. But for, for Kylie to have been the... There's just so many cinematic parallels, a few of which you actually brought to my attention, Jerry. So not only did Kylie get kicked out... She was ninth, in ninth maybe, place. Um, mm-hmm. In season two, which was such a long time ago, doing Snatch Game as Gaga. As Gaga. She then yep. came back and killed Snatch Game and then mm-hmm. won the show doing a Gaga lip sync the trip into the role, into the recovery of the century, um, it was it's all just so perfectly packaged. And I think it's a really important moment to acknowledge that Rue has gone on record as saying sort of various different things. The overarching narrative is that, you know, the only thing we've ever screened for is charisma, uniqueness, nerve and talent. But there was also a time when Rue said, if you're an Olympian and you take performance-enhancing drugs, you can't take part in the Olympics and drag race is the Olympics of drag. And that was, I think, kind of, you know, referencing um, trans contestants. I think the important thing to note here is, and it's not to sort of drag rule or cancel him, but it's in the the transformative uh, and educational uh, nature of the show. I think it's so important that Rue probably acknowledges that some of the stuff that he said in the past wasn't correct and that trans queens have always been around and probably helped raise, if they didn't raise him, they've raised so many of the queens we love today and are so many of the queens we love today. And the fact that we've, you know, in this year alone, we've had Got Mick, the first ever male trans contestant. We've had Kylie Sonic Love, the first ever um, female trans winner. And then coming up soon in the, U- in the UK, we've got Victoria Scon, our first ever AFAB queen. And I think it's really cool that, you know, drag is evolving and drag, well, drag race is evolving and changing. And I'm keen to know what you guys think might be the next frontier. Mm. Like, do you think that there's a space for drag kings on the show? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is I, I I do think it's important that you made that distinction that it's drag race that is sort of doing the evolution because it is in a lot of ways 
it's a reality show first, and then it is sort of a history lesson and a, a, a cultural touchstone, I guess you could say, for the community. It is first and foremost a reality show, and that's not a ding against it. It's just the nature of television, right? But I do think there's there's obviously, anywhere there's drag, there is a place for drag kings, there is a place for um, cis women as drag queens. It is, anywhere there's drag, there's a place for everybody. So I do think that it's getting to that point where in future seasons we will see a drag king eventually. But um, Drag Race has been slower to sort of bring... I think as a whole, these, these groups into the sort of mainstream fold, um, but it's happening, you know, it's, it's slow, but it's happening. And, uh, I think that the show has been reluctant to address things in a sort of overt way and, in coming out and whether it's apologizing for things or addressing things directly, they sort of do it through slow action versus actually, you know, coming out and saying, well, this is what we did wrong. This is what we're going to do to fix it. So um, that seems to be their approach. And I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I take issue with that approach, but uh, it just seems that it's, it's producing probably slower results than a lot of the internet culture demands things very, very quickly. And you can't really do that in the world of television. Um, so they're making strides. And if you look at Rue's history, I mean, Rue has always supported the trans community if you even if you go back on to earlier seasons of drag race rue is always referencing mm-hmm. um there's a there's a very early season where rue references Marsha p johnson and is giving a history the lesson to the queens on the you know the right and the and, and is referencing the four mothers of drag as being trans mm-hmm. women so uh rue definitely I, i'm not sure what happened with those quotes and mm-hmm. um i i can't claim to know what rue was you know, thinking and, and saying those things, but all I know is that Rue has displayed an appreciation for trans women in the past. So yes, I, I completely agree, Joey. And um, uh, there's been times in the past where I veer into the territory of being a bit of a Rue apologist, and I do want to check myself there. But I do revere Rue. He's he's one of my all time pop culture um, and queer heroes. And um, he he has made mistakes. Uh, he has his flaws. That that quote, that time was a flawed time. Uh, like you, I'm not going to pretend to know what was going on there. And I'm also not going to pretend to know what it felt like as a trans person to, or a trans drag performer to, um, you know, to know the impact of what those words might have had on me. However, the, the evidence talks for itself in, like you said, Rue, actually Drew was raised by trans people. Rue did come up with trans people um, and was kind of at the forefront of that through Atlanta, San Diego, New York. The evidence is there with people like Lady Bunny and um, that whole crew. And um, I think what gets me, the, the only thing I want to say on this before we move on to the next topic is um, the part of the internet which crushes me a little bit is that um, we can be incredibly quick to drag up that that one um, really misguided, unfortunate quote as evidence of Rue being a transphobic person, when actually the last 30 years show um, the complete opposite of that. And um, I know that also as a culture, we are there to punch up. We, we, we're we not punching down. And Rue is at the top. I think you made a really good point, Joey, in the last episode where... Um, Rue is at the kind of the peak of this pyramid. So, of course, he's going to catch the shit. And he knows that. I don't think he needs anyone to defend him. But um, sometimes when you see the 15-year-olds calling Rue a transphobe, it's like, 
please just actually don't read a book, go on YouTube and watch the videos because that's within your access. You can access that history there. Sometimes, I mean, I think when you're at that age though, or you're, you know, coming up at a certain point in your life and that's, and you know, you, you, you judge what in pop culture is, is what's in front of you. And if somebody on that platform is saying something that you don't like, and you're a 15 year old and that's your experience and connection to this person in pop culture, that's what you have to go off of. And, uh, you know, not everybody does their homework. And I, and I, like you said, I, it's, it's not sort of our place to say that, you know, a trans person is incorrect for sort of not knowing that history and not applying that history to certain something that was said recently. I, I fully support, you know, trans people taking issue with what, you know, is, is hurtful to the community. And if they interpret or digest something as, and tell us that it's being hurtful to them, I trust that and respect that. But, um, yeah, I do think that, like you're saying, there are things that you can go back through in history and pick out as, as Rue, as these sort of, like we're saying, these, these, I, I hate to call it evidence because it's not like I'm trying to build a case for or against, but it's just, there are things that you can pick out where you're like, okay, you know, Rue is, it, it has not always been what people are accusing him of being. The really cool thing here is, is that the, the first trans contestant in the entire franchise as we know it, the first person to announce on Drag Race as a franchise that they were transgendered was in season two as a contestant formerly known as Sonique and now a crowned winner of All Stars 6 11 years later as Kylie Sonique Love. And that is just the most joyous Drag Race full circle story uh, that I can think of. It's number one. Joey, where did you, um, where did this franchise, this pop culture phenomenon that we're here to talk about, um, where did it come into in your life? What were you doing? Where did it hit you? Oh God, this is one of my truly, I think I told this last time, we're going to, I'm going to keep referencing everything that happened on this (laughs) mysterious uh, old podcast. Um, But I, it's one of my favorite stories to tell um, with my dear friend, Alice, who I actually met when... (laughs) at choir practice when we were children uh we met through a pastor it was really funny but we were we we launched an oscar website together where i would do oscar predictions which i still do to this day and uh she was coming in to pittsburgh where i was living at the time to watch the oscars as a celebration of this website that that we had launched and she said maybe I'll come in a day or two early because there is this drag queen performing. Her name's Alaska. She's going to be on the season five of RuPaul's Drag Race. Do you watch that show? And I was like, no, I've literally never seen the show in my life, but yes, I will come to this drag show. So my first ever drag show was seeing Alaska before she was famous on the show at this little dive bar, the blue moon in Lawrenceville and Pittsburgh. It was a wonderful show. And we went back, we watched the Oscars the next day at my apartment, and this was back when Drag Race was on Netflix. We watched, as soon as the Oscars were done, Alice showed me season three of Drag Race, and we watched it, I'm not kidding you, until like 7am, until the sun came up. So that was my very first experience ever, was watching season three of Drag Race until I got no sleep that night. (laughs) And I've been obsessed ever since, truly obsessed. And I think that season three is such uh, an interesting one to start on. I, my first um, season was season four. And I think that 
whenever I talk about my first experiences of, of Drag Race and if I'm ever, ever recommending it to people, I often say start with season four because it's got the sort of... Uh, all of the characters and the way that it evolves yes. and the sort of uh-huh. the underdoggery of it all is really, really, um, you know, poetic. But there's something yeah. about season three. Those queens, every single one of those queens is wholly iconic in their own way. <laughs> so many of them have gone on to to be on All-Star seasons much, much later on than their original season. Um, they're some of the, our most revered queens today. You've got Raja, you've got Shangela, you've got Manila, you've got India Farah, yeah. for Christ's sake. And I think that <laughs> it's um, it's not necessarily a slept on season, but a, an, an incredible uh, gateway drug for, um, mm-hmm. for Drag Race, for sure. I agree. Yes, fully agree. Andy, mm. what was your first... I believe you were in bed with my sister, weren't you? What? I was I was in bed what? with your sister. Plot twist. I, I don't want to put any of those secrets out on the record, so um, I'll give you the uh, the abridged version. Um, I, I was watching season four with your sister in bed, and it was specifically the episode where Kenya Michaels introduced La Trans Bear to the world, which was a completely iconic entry into the franchise. Um, but on reflection... Because I came into that season probably a little bit after it finished and then I don't know what happened, but I I know now to be fact, to be gospel on my journey is the first season I watched in real time was All Stars 1, um, which I think led me onto the pathway of being a professor of All Stars that I am today. Um, I think having <laughs> that introduction to like the very, very best of effectively the the three or four seasons before that um, in a really bizarre, effed up way, which many people still bag on to this day. We know that there were many flaws of it, but it's a fever dream of a season. It's chaos. It's completely chaotic and an incredible introduction to so many talented queens. Um, And then the first actual kind of canon season I watched in real time was season five, which um, was a a blessing to watch because I was watching it from when I lived in Orlando for a year and each Sunday we'd go to this incredible legendary institution of a nightclub called the world famous Parliament House and at that time a regular Mm. performer was Roxy Andrews. And I Aww. I kid you not, we watched the first episode of season five and just purely coincidental, I mean, it must have been because she was promoting the show, really. She was performing at the club at that Sunday. And that was the first time that I'd actually seen a queen from the show in real life. And I was gagged and gooped and gobsmacked. And, um, and then the journey you go on with Roxy in that season was so interesting because you start out with her being this complete superstar and she ends being a superstar, but she obviously does become the villain of the season which was a bit disappointing to see as a, as a as a viewer but then coming back to being a professor of all stars truly one of all stars' greatest um redemptions ever so we love you Roxy Andrews we see you we stand she made um, she made it clear she 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 made it crystal crystal <laughs> what about you Drew i remember i I'd, I'd heard about this thing called RuPaul's Drag Race and i knew who RuPaul was because at some point in my late teens, early 20s, I discovered the Supermodel of the World video and I was just like, oh my God, what is this? I, I love it. Um, and the, the, the sort of, yeah, the phrase RuPaul's Drag Race had just been sort of, you know, buzzing around me, but I, I didn't really know what it was. And one hungover Saturday afternoon, I was just like, 
come on now. How how have you never even attempted to watch a show called RuPaul's Drag Race? So um, yeah, I put on season four, and I think similar to you, Joey, I I would I would have EW binged the whole thing in oh, um, plug it <laughs> yes ding um, <laughs> in in a day or two maybe, and then went back, and I think I did three and then two and then one and then all stars one came out and then yeah from from then on it's just been this thing that i've watched as soon as i possibly could as it came out and you know we're, we're lucky nowadays boys where we've got things like netflix and, and streaming services that you know release them on the day but back in the day it was torrents and like illegal um you know vpn sites and what have you and um watching oh my god you know i have to report you to the authorities now <laughs> Um, yeah, we'll, um, we'll, we'll redact that, but, um, it's, it's, it's been so, I think that sort of to go back to, and I feel like, you know, Kylie's win will probably oscillate around this episode a lot, but it really has, um, kind of punctuated to me the way that the, the show and, and the game and how you play it has evolved. And I think that's what makes Kylie's win even more triumphant, right? Because... She not only came back to do Drag Race, she came back and did Drag Race in the way it's done now and nailed it. And that's yes. a really, really difficult thing to do. If you, if, you, if you look at sort of what was expected of the queens, even up until like getting to sort of season seven and maybe even eight um, versus what's expected now, I remember I think seeing a, um, an interview with Got Mick recently who said that he spent... I think about twenty thousand or twenty five thousand dollars to to get all of his clothes for the show, and I remember thinking that actually seems low, low. <laughs> like I can't, I can't believe that you managed to pull that off for that little amount of money. Whereas crazy. I think like even trick. I think Alaska says like I spent six hundred bucks on season five, and. Raja O'Hara spent six hundred dollars on yeah, on this season, she did. and then India Farah. I think India Farah said that she spent like forty thousand on All Stars Five. Wild. That's wild. It's it is it's insane. It really is insane. But it's like, yeah, that's that's it's because it's it's getting into that discussion of Drag Race evolving, and is it a fashion show now? In addition to being, is it a fashion show first, and then a sort of drag competition? I think that's the the one of the new narratives that I've seen mm-hmm. coming out recently is talking about how it's these queens are sort of paying people to make their looks instead of making them themselves on set. And I think it's really telling that some of the best episodes of recent seasons are the seasons where they're all making their own stuff. Mm-hmm. That's when I feel like that's old school drag race. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm seeing their vision and talent and creativity. And what I've always said is I would that I would love to see is... Uh, having an in-house designer or like three or four in-house designers where I think they do this on Legendary where the group on Legendary comes up with a look and a concept. They bring it to a designer and the designer makes the looks there. That was actually, I don't know if you know this, but that was one of the original premises for Drag Race. The idea was that the queen would come with a designer. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. they they would make clothes together. Right, right. Well, that was always, I think... Has anybody confirmed that, or has, has that just been like? I've, perhaps it's conjecture, but I've heard it from um, from a few different people—not people, but you know—on um, on a few different um, podcasts. I think it's perhaps you know yeah. law, drag race law. 
Yes, yes. I mean, that would be a really interesting concept. and Even to do that now, yeah, as you say. Yeah, yeah. I would love to see that in the future. Or not even, like, maybe not even pairing them all with a different designer, but just having, like, you know, like I said, three or four designers who are making all of these looks for everybody. They're not necessarily paired together, but, like, the queens concept the looks, they draw them, they give them to the designers, the designers whip them up in, like, a day or two, you know? Um, so it's not like they're actually collaborating together. But I just think it might put everybody on a more even playing field if they they did that. Interesting. I think it would be nice to um, to to credit some of the designers as as the queens are walking. I think that would be yeah. like yeah. a really sort of simple and cool thing to do because it's an international. Three designers would get credit <laughs> yeah. for a whole season. <laughs> Just Marco, 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 Marco. Diego. Speaking of costumes, last night the um, this clip package from season one, this aforementioned Fever Dream. Um, he, you know, they do this uh, lol bit with Merle and Santino where they rate the best um, outfits of season one, and um, at the end they, of course. They say the winner is RuPaul with RuPaul's many incredible, fabulous gowns. And then RuPaul says, because no one would really have known at that time, RuPaul says, actually, all of my gowns are by someone called Zoldi, who I've worked with for years. Um, And then I was like, I stand Zoldi, I'm a Zoldi stan. Um, So I googled Zoldi and um, one of the articles which came up was written by one Joey Nolfi. Um, And and I think it was around season (laughs) 11, 10 or 11. Yes. Um, uh-huh, it was 11, I think. Yeah, and I just thought, how cool would it be to speak to someone who actually, like we were saying at the very start, came up with RuPaul from the very, you know, kind of mid-80s, went through that incredible scene along with Matthew Anderson and so many others, and created the RuPaul that we know, but it still worked together to this day. And it ended with um, a very funny moment where it was like, you know, Zoldi started out being kind of, you know, he'd get the outline from Ru, well, the production team or whatever about, you know, you've got 10 episodes to do here are the themes go and do it and now it's like uh, we're not going to tell you the themes so just give us some great dresses and also you need to do them for we've got um all stars we've got uk we've got um some award ceremonies we've got some more things so could just give us about 45 dresses and we'll just pick what we want from it and zoldi's (laughs) just like fine i got this (laughs) (laughs) well and it's it's you know zoldi always makes sure that woman is looking flawless mm. on that runway mm. and rue has i mean the the fashion game for rue has just gone through the roof in the past few few seasons but it's really interesting because a lot of that stuff is also archive stuff it's mm-hmm. not necessarily new creations some of it a lot mm. of it is stuff pulled from rue's old archives that rue and zaldi will just go through on the day and be like oh yeah i love this this is from what 1994 okay yeah lovely and it's it's just so cool the amount of stuff that they have to choose from it's it's epic. I would love to see inside of that closet. Apparently, he's an immaculate archivist, RuPaul. Like, he just keeps yes. everything uh-huh. immaculate. Yeah. Yep. I imagine that, yeah, as you say, Zoldi must be exhausted. And I'm imagining wholly employed by RuPaul full-time. Um, yes. But it's that kind of, you know, ongoing, as you reference, Andy, that ongoing, decade-long creative um, partnership um, that's really really fun to have like kind of witness part of the evolution of um and it's it does it does stand to be mentioned that you know rue is a man of a certain age and comes out on that runway 
this is not news to anyone, but just looking so, so in, like completely flawlessly incredible. I don't know. I think there's something really triumphant in that. Um, and I can't wait to, to see what they continue to make together. Mm. I mean, all, I'm, all I know is that my dad and RuPaul are the exact same age. What? And if my dad came out on those stage, <laughs> that stage, look at some of those dresses, and he would not be pulling it off. Let's just say Well, that. Joey, we've actually got a surprise for you. Um, <laughs> no, my dad's here. <laughs> we will not be asking him about Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> um, boys, we are, um, we are a queer music podcast, and this episode is coming as episode nine after a new cycle. Last cycle, listeners, in case you don't know, we did a really incredible deep dive into the queer music history of, um, well, the last 30 years of, of the Walt Disney Company, basically, um, about an incredible man called Howard Ashman. And we know that, you know, Drag Race is heavy on the music, whether it's Rue's music, the Queen's music, the Rusicals. Um, so I just thought it would be... Um, keeping the theme on brand to do a quick rip around of maybe your favourite musical moment, maybe, Joey, your favourite musical ever. I know you've said before that you like them all, but I do need a favourite. I need an answer. I, oh God. See, even since the last time we did this, I think that I've tipped more into one. I, is it, ugh, I can't decide between Shade and the Madonna musical Because last our discussion last time you know did right push me into Madonna musical territory. It really did. Uh, because I think that there are so many moments in there that work as references to Madonna's career and they're really smart references and the queens take to them so well. Like we were saying, Jada, her performance just captures that, that era so wonderfully, but also makes it something that is so unique to Jada. Jan, I mean, what can, it just, it's just complete fabulousness, but you also have these moments that work for people who will have no idea who the fuck Madonna is, which I don't know, you know, bless those people if they don't know who Madonna is, they don't know what her, her, what her career is, but I mean, there's something as stupid as like, <laughs> it's another thing that just makes me crack up when Crystal Method just like jumps into the frame with her little yes. denim jacket from the Ray of Light video. It's like, it's, it's just, it's wonderful. It is, yes. it's a really great well-rounded musical. so I think I might I might be leaning to, to toward that that's as the being correct one of my answer favorites. congratulations you found it yeah I, I mean <laughs> but shout yay. out to shade because shade started it all and I remember watching shade it was my first year in Australia and I was I was watching it on my own and um, I just wish that I'd been with you know my drag race tribe because I was just screaming at the TV by myself <laughs> that something so wonderful could be happening before me um it was the first and it started it all but I do think you know yeah the Madonna Rusical is the best. And I think the thing with the Madonna Rusical is that I believe it was maybe Jack... No, it's um, it's Britta, Britta and Heidi in the bottom. And neither of them were, were really were bad. It was just that no one was everyone, was, everyone was of such a no high one. level that it mm. just... It, it was, it was a, a, a nitpick that that saw them both in the bottom, but it's such a high quality musical. I think in terms of my top musical moments, I've got to just give a shout out for the entire back catalogue of All Stars 3, from Divas Live to um, the Sitting on a Secret slash Drag Up Your Life uh, sing-off is 
it, I mean, that whole episode is obviously when Ben uh, self-eliminates and you know, Baby Bunton's there, Adam Lambert's there. Um, it's just the sort of this, this coming together of a lot of queer excellence. My heart, rate, my heart rate is increasing just hearing you talk about it. I feel uncomfortable. That was my number three. That was my number three choice. <laughs> the, moment, Truly. the moment for me is when Aja says, let me show you how to level up your puss in the middle of a kitty cat fight. And then like jumps into this kind of like, she crawls her legs and then splits. And the editors do that thing um, whereby they add like the, it's like this kind of like, that's not in the song, but it just makes it even more elevated. And that just makes my heart scream. Both of those performances were in my top five listened to on Spotify for that year. And I think Kitty Girl was nine. So that, that whole, that whole season in terms of music is just so incredible to me. I think we mentioned it last time, but it it does, they're repeating that um, there is, there were whispers in the willows that Ali X was a co-writer with Leland on Sitting on a Secret and Drag Up Your Life, which is just even more incredible. Well, Cole, I, I, I'm not sure about, I, genu- I genuinely don't know about writing, but vocals. Yes, she did backing vocals. She told me um, that, and you can, I've gone back and I've tried to listen. It's like, you can really pick her out. Uh, it's, it's actually really? quite distinct once you learn that it is her. Oh yeah, you can go back and you can hear her uh, very Because I always try and pick out... Yeah. Um, Robin in Britney's Piece of Me, and you can just sometimes hear it, but it's not as um, obvious as I'd uh, prefer if I had my choice. That's actually a very similar comparison, yeah, as to like sifting through vocals that sound very similar to find Ali's. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really good comparison to as to give people an idea of the kind of difficulty of layered vocals they're trying to sift through. But there's also another background singer who has joined Drag Race in recent years who sounds exactly like Ali X, but is not Ali X. I have since confirmed <laughs> it is not Ali X in recent, in recent years, but I, cause I thought that I was hearing her in other songs and I asked her and she was like, yeah, right. no, okay. it's not me. <laughs> so, um, the only other one I wanted to mention was, uh, of course, we've got to pay homage to our UK dolls, our U- United King dolls. It was truly, it was truly validating to see kind of like even American gays, Australian gays, gays across the world lose their shit to, you know, a song called UK Hum. It was like, if this is the United Kingdom's queer cultural contribution, I can die happy. Enjoy. Yeah, because I was going to say that the UK's past queer cultural contribution was technically from Australia, Miss Kylie Minogue, so (laughs) they need something. Yes. (laughs) At least we have two iconic Kylies now, because we're not going to count that third Kylie. We have two iconic Kylies. No, we've got two. We've got a hard two. Tight two. Um, one, one aspect of Drag Race that I would like to, um, to sort of delve into next. And it's one that we, we spoke about a lot when we, when we spoke for the first time around, Joey, but I do think it's, it's sort of, it's, it's worth noting because, um, the conversation that we had about the fandom was one that, um, really sort of illuminated me, the, the way you spoke about, um, your sort of your take on on why the fandom is how it is was really really um, I think special and and articulate and captured in a way that um, I haven't really sort of 
heard captured before. So no pressure, but can you repeat it verbatim now? Uh, yeah, verbatim. Yes. No, I, I think that it's interesting because people are very, very, very protective over the Drag Race legacy because, and whether they realize it or not, this is my theory. I think that it's because Drag Race sort of came up at the start of the modern queer rights movement and that's not to you know uh, diminish any of the fight that happened before that i'm just talking about from like you know late 2000s on whenever people were fighting for queer rights particularly in the united states because that's from more my perspective is i think you can really chart how drag race's success dovetails with the increase in attention that that uh, queer rights movement had because uh, you start drag race starts in what 2009 and that's right at the beginning of Obama's presidency, where we're coming off of a conservative president um, into this new era that people are really hopeful and excited about, right? Obama won on the sort of idea of hope and progressiveness in, in the future. And Don't Ask, Don't Tell gets knocked down in 2011, right as Drag Race is sort of ramping up, and it's still on logo at that point. But it's sort of dovetailing with an increase in political focus on queer rights and then as the show continues to get more popular it's coming into the era of marriage equality um in the united states which happened in 2015 across the country and then you get into when it started to get really i think divisive the the fandom we started to see it on a much bigger level was when you sort of enter into the Trump era where people are using the show because it is the most prominent, you know, queer themed drag show in the world on a mainstream platform. It's sort of becomes like, I think I, I, I call it like the rallying cry of people. It becomes the face of in, at least in pop culture, uh, the face of this movement and people use it as a, tool of representation and saying this is what's representing our community i mean the show even like you were saying before actively engages with telling people to vote and they do the trump rusical and it's like it is this sort of poster for equality in pop culture and people attach very strong emotions to that and that's why people are so protective of it and they want it to be the best that it can be and to represent the core values of everybody in this community because it is the face of this community on a mainstream platform in many ways, whether people like it or not. I mean, when you are the only show from this community, the drag community, on this level, I mean, of course, you have shows like Dragula, which, you know, is a fantastic show, but it's a, it's a little bit, I think, in a little bit of a different realm than Drag Race is. Um, and it's certainly not on, you know, VH1 or Paramount Plus, which are huge networks in, in the U.S. People become protective. And that's why I think they so ferociously guard these ideas that Drag Race is engaging with, because it is the only place that you can really see issues like this on this level in, in the mainstream. So, um that's why I think people are so fiercely protective of it. And it's not coming from a place of vitriol or, I mean, it's anger, but it's, it's coming from a place of protecting uh, the community. Even as you were saying that, um, Joey, I kind of, I thought about something that I didn't think about last time, which was Drag Race at its heart is about championing the underdog 
n- championing the weirdo, you know, yeah, giving us giving a stage to um, to people that have never experienced such kind of you know um, reverie or celebration um, to be their true authentic selves. Um, or certainly that was the case when sort of Drag Race started. And, and now for, for younger people who also feel ostracized or sort of outside of, of the mainstream, it becomes this thing that they can wholly own because it completely encapsulates that journey of feeling subjugated because you don't fit in and then finding out your authentic self and turning that up to 11 and then celebrating it. And then that being the thing that everyone loves, that's the kind of the the queer dream, really, to kind of to be able to, to, to succeed in that is the kind of the holy grail, I would say, of of being a sort of a queer other. And so when that show encapsulates that story being told literally hundreds and hundreds of times with all of these different queens, not only do um, do you sort of quite naturally gravitate towards owning the show, but you start to own the queens a bit, or you want to, and you sort of, you become their, 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 their defendant and their, um, their, you know, you, you just completely want to, uh, suck every little part up of them. And then when they do well, you want to celebrate it. And if they have some sort of rivalry with someone else, then you, your sort of the lowest common denominator is to to cut that other person down. And I think that's where a lot of the vitriol kind of comes from. It's never really about actually hating a queen because of who they are. It's often about you loving a queen and then another queen in some way stands to threaten that queen's journey. And sort of it becomes this, um, uh, this, yeah, platform for all of this kind of, uh, this melee of um, of often negative opinions, was, which is such a shame because at its heart, as I said before, it's about celebrating the underdog and kind of succeeding in 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 the face of adversity. Um, and it's 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 quite interesting to observe how it's kind of become this big tangle of um, of various different heated emotions. Yeah, and it's I think a lot of people always assume that it is just younger fans who are being vicious online and it truly isn't i mean you the the i've seen horrific comments being made by people of all ages who are fans quote-unquote fans of this show and i think that that might also speak to an issue that might be specific in some ways to this community because in a lot of ways as younger people we don't necessarily get those outlets to express frustration and push back against you know the people who are bullying us and it 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 sort of is this outlet that hand in hand with the internet the anonymity that the internet provides of being this outlet to you know hit back at people that they see in a very highly edited produced you know little tidbit of a reality show perceiving these people as being rude or combative or you know going up against a queen that they are like you're saying identifying with or associating themselves with so it becomes like a backlash and an anger that is really tied to something subconscious within themselves too I'm going I feel like I'm kind of being read and analyzed inadvertently. Um I <laughs> Don't tell me you're one of these people cutting up on these well, actually, queens online. I I actually had would have had no intentions of ever putting this on record. 
Um, but I think it's really pertinent to the conversation. And I think enough time has passed that I can kind of talk about it without being too embarrassed. But, you know, regardless, um, I about eight years ago, so very early into my drag race fandom, I don't feel comfortable admitting which queen it was, but I left a really mean comment on a queen's Instagram. And um, at the time, uh, that queen, this was before, really, gosh, this really was before um, the internet, or the, the Instagram fandom has blown up to where we know it now, where you can scroll through many queens posts and sadly see so much garbage. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't put anything too hateful, but that queen actually did call me out and, um, and like posted it on their account. And, um, and I got, you know, a, a low level of hate mail. And I actually, I, I remember, you know, at the time feeling like a bit embarrassed, but also funny, uh, like not funny. I remember thinking, oh gosh, how silly this is, this is just really blown up. Um, and eight years later, I've thought about it a lot. And I thought about it's what made me do it. Like, why Why did I feel like I could talk to someone or leave a mean comment um, on a stranger's social media profile, someone who I've never met, who probably never will meet, who is incredibly talented, has put their talent out into the world. What made me feel like I could put that out there? I feel like when we talk about... Um, how vitriolic and nasty drag race fans can be. I know in my heart of hearts what I said was more on the humorous side than really cunty, so I can at least sleep okay with that knowledge. But I still did it. I still made the choice to write a sentence to hurt someone's feelings and press publish. And um, I very quickly realized that it was a mistake and I shouldn't have done it and I didn't do it again. But there was still something there which made me do it in the first place. And that is why I think it's particularly interesting. And both the things that you two have said have made, you know, we've really got closer to clarifying maybe some of these reasons why people do it. But there was something about the passion that I feel for the show, which made me feel like maybe while I was lavishing praise on the queens that I loved, I could maybe also shit on a queen that I thought was was not doing well and um absolutely not my place to do it and I quickly realized that but um fuck people I mean you, people do it all the time like people do it yeah. constantly and I think we've made a big headway in adults grown adults realizing that it's entirely inappropriate and absolutely to never say something to someone on social media that you wouldn't happily say to their face but actually just to not give anything negative at all. You know, it, the old adage, which my mother did raise me to believe in, which is if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, is often the truth and how we should talk to these incredibly talented people who put their talent out there. And um, Andy, I, I, I actually like, I thanks for sharing that story because, you know, it's, it's off, pr probably many listeners might have had similar experiences. And I think that the, the learning from it is let's raise everyone up, you know, let's, mm. let's, let's use the experiences of the past and the things that we see from other people online that seem so kind of, you know, um, misguided and, and sort of unnecessarily hateful and acknowledge that unfortunately that is a thing. And, you know, um, 
I, I don't think that on the on the scale of trollery, I think that you're you're probably not too far down in the <laughs> sort of deep pit of hell. Um, but let's you you what you've done is use it as a a, a teachable mo- moment, a, a, a learning moment, to then say actually no, like if I do feel negative things, then whatever, definitely don't put them online. But more than that, let's use our voices, whether it's amongst our friends or online or whatever, to 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 raise people up, to raise these queens up, because going on that show is. We sort of sit, it's, it's sport for us, right? We sit every Thursday evening and we watch it and we cheer and we, and we hope to see success and we sort of revel in the drama of it all. And we sort of, we, we, we love that. But going on that show is a deeply financially, emotionally, um, spiritually taxing thing for these queens, mm. I would imagine. Mm. I'm talking about it without ha- ever, ever having sort of... Um, even been close to competing on a on a on a drag com- competition. One day, but Drew. It's one day. Drag one race down under season two. Season two. But it's really, really <laughs> fucking hard for them. And um and I think, you know, something that you do really well, Joey, without blowing too much smoke up your ass, is you never ever <laughs> But you never ever um call queens out. You even if, if you're interviewing a controversial queen, you'll give them the opportunity to to say their piece. And you'll sort of, you'll toe that line really well in sort of holding, holding queens accountable for the things that they might have said or done, but ultimately raising them up and celebrating them for doing something that is incredibly artful and still very brave and, um, and celebratory that makes us all feel good um, for minimum investment on our part. And I think that's a really, really important thing. Thank you very much for saying that. And I, I think that the, it is a very calculated way that I do approach interviews is, I mean, I ask the questions that need to be asked. I would never not ask a question that needs to be asked. And, you know, I'm not out here giving a free pass to anybody who's done something problematic. If you've done something problematic, you need to be asked about it. But I do think that there is a way that, you know, we're, we're talking to people who, you know, have a camera in their face like you're saying, when they're in probably a mountain of financial debt, they are, uh, you know, they have been awake for 16 hours filming a, a TV show. They're probably hot. They're probably hungry. They're probably cold. Like they're they're running the gamut of emotions and and feelings here. So, and we're getting such a tiny snapshot of these people in their day. So, who am I to judge something that somebody said, unless it's an outright you know, problematic, horrible thing that somebody is is saying about somebody else. Who? How are we supposed to judge these little snippets that we see of them on TV to sort of somehow communicate who they are as people? And it, it's who they are as people in these moments that we're seeing. And that's why you will, I have made it also like a personal philosophy of mine to like, I mean, you've seen my social media, my social media, like I'm a, I'm a fucking dumb bitch on Twitter. <laughs> like I just do the <laughs> dumbest shit on Twitter. But... I will never, ever make a joke at the expense of somebody. I, I will never post a critical tweet or reaction to this show because I know that just as easily as something that I might make that might be funny could go viral, like saying something mean could also go Absolutely. viral as well. And it's mm-hmm. like, I, I will never say that. Um, oh, sorry, hold on. My dog is barking. Can you hear my dog barking? What's your dog's name? 
Zeke. Sarge. My little, oh, Zeke. My little Zeke. Sar- Did you say Sarge? <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking of Miss Wintergreen. Um, oh, yes. No. Uh, wintergreen on the brain no um but yeah i just think that it's it's it you're not helping the situation mm. by you might think you're being funny you might think you're being snarky mm. but and you might you you might be being snarky in a way that's funny to some people but it's like you're not helping anybody by making people laugh at someone else's expense so if you no. want to be a dumb bitch and post stupid ass memes about drag race i'm all for it but i'm never going to get to that level of criticizing people i think i posted one critical tweet that was a joke about adam Ripon one time because he was being really mean to scarlet about her jewelry and i felt bad when he was a guest mm. judge do you remember oh was it the, like he- the olympic yeah <laughs> like he because scarlet was wearing gold and silver and he said that they don't go well together and i said something like oh don't uh i said forgive adam ripon for not liking scarlet silver and gold he's only used to bronze i mean but that's (laughs) if you make me laugh you know it's a read like they would do at the library challenge yes yeah and that's that's um, actually exactly it and um when you reflect on um how much kind of reading and shade has been part of queer culture for decades and decades, if not, you know, time immemorium, um, you could really psychoanalyze it and, and get into, is it, does it come from, you know, um, making light of dark situations, um, owning humor because people kind of insult us constantly. So if we insult each other with love, it kind of takes the power out of that. And, and I don't think any of us are saying we want to live in a society where everyone's really, really sweet and sincere and kind and gentle with each other all of the time because I think the the definition of shade is you know um that gentle kind of well well reading people but with like love at heart and and not necessarily mean um so it's kind of part of queer culture in that way but but bullying isn't and being nasty and mean without any kind of um positive or uh humorous um intent at all doesn't have a place and i think that's where we're getting close to in realizing certainly well and i i think bringing it back to miss alexis michelle um on that episode the library challenge where she was kind of upset about the things that people had said about her it's like she had a really good point and i know a lot of people on that episode thought that she was being too sensitive but no i think she had a good point where she was saying if you're gonna make if you know somebody well enough to read them in a context that you have to make sure that it's something that's going to make them laugh and not make them truly deeply hurt. And you have to make sure everybody's laughing with you and not just at somebody. And I think that all of the reads, mostly I would say like 90% of the reads that land on Drag Race are because they're born out of these people knowing these people, knowing, you know, maybe some things that they've opened up to them in the past that aren't going to exploit those things, but is like a playful jab at them and that's what the the sort of root of that is on the show. Now, I know that, you know, reading and shade has a whole other context outside of Drag Race, as Drag Race fans usually do. They take things that, you know, have been staples of queer culture and drag culture for many, many, many decades, and it becomes its own thing in the context of Drag Race. So speaking just in those terms, I think that, yeah, reading is like, it, it's, it's coming from these queens knowing and appreciating each other, and they're, you know good qualities as much as the things that they're insecure about. And so. I think I think that kind of um harks Shout back to, to what you were 
Yeah, well, um, but it's, <laughs> it harks back to what you were saying earlier, Joey, about, you know, has the, the question around has Drag Race become a fashion show? And the, the answer to that is, is yes, but also it's become a comedy show and it's become an acting yeah. show and it's become uh-huh. a singing show. And you have to be a 10 in everything. And that's really, really difficult to do. And I think that reading is an art form. Being able to find the fine line between acknowledging something that is funny about someone, twisting it into a joke that's that's cruel, but ultimately, um, you know, will incite joy because it's just on the cusp of of um, of those two things is. It is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Some might say it's as hard as making a dress or singing a song in tune. And not all, not every single queen that goes on to Drag Race can do everything perfectly. And um, and that is those, that's one of those that's one of those instances where it's sort of a lot is expected of um, of queens going into Drag Race now. Um, and not everyone is going to be Bianca Del Rio. Any kind of sort of closing remarks or questions that you want to throw out there, Drew, as we wrap up? Well, I mean, we had a, a nice moment last time. I know we've sort of referenced the the lost episode um, a little bit. <laughs> um, but I think in the spirit of Raising Queens Up, um, I would like to... I mean, I don't know if you have had any sort of really, really heartfelt moments, Joey, when you've been interviewing queens in the past? Because there's, I'm pretty sure at, the, at this point in time, there are probably few queens you haven't interviewed. Um, yeah. So are there any sort of moments that really stick out of you, uh, st- stick out of you, stick out for you um, as being a really sort of tender connection with a queen that, um, that perhaps you weren't expecting? Yeah, uh, there was, so two, one was not, not as serious. The second one, a little bit more serious. Um, so the first one is when I did a whole backstage sort of, uh, walkthrough with Trixie Mattel before she went on stage for her last tour before the pandemic. So I got to sit in her dressing room, watch her get ready. I was talking to her while she was, you know, putting her face on and I got to go to the meet and greet with her, watch her interact with the fans watch her go backstage and do a sound check did you have to line up in the meet and greet uh, i did not no i was part Mm. of the entourage um (laughs) i so it was it it was really nice getting to see that sort of intimate preparation and and spontaneous atmosphere and and seeing her and really appreciating what she does as an artist and a celebrity at the same time it was really really cool to see those two things sort of meld together and i think i really did connect with her and we talked about some really cool things about the business of drag but also you know her as a person and her philosophies on comedy and life and it was a really intimate discussion and i really saw trixie in a different way i have always saw trixie in a very positive light but this was really eye-opening into what goes into her craft and then i think probably the most emotional interview i've ever done was with jada right after jada won because wow since season 12 i've been interviewing the winners you know the day of their crownings or immediately oh after they, they've been crowned so i got jada on the phone i want to say maybe 10 minutes after they had the viewing <gasps> party and she oh. watched herself win my God. 
lives. And I mean, you just want to get emotion. That's cruel of them <laughs> that they have to go into the media. <laughs> well, it it, it 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 leads to some really really raw moments, of and course. I think for Jada especially because she was it, this was you know I think a few days after George Floyd had been murdered, mm-hmm. and she was taking it all in in the context of this sort of cultural moment. And she just was completely open and raw and emotional. She started crying. I st- I actually had to put myself on mute because I was tearing up a little bit. I mean, just what this victory, she was explaining what the victory meant to her and why it meant so much to her in this moment. And, you know, speaking to herself as a, as a kid and what this would have meant to her as a child. And it's like, we hear a lot of people talk about that, about representation and why it matters. And if they had seen somebody like them growing up on TV, it's like, it's almost become a standard in an interview for somebody to, to say something like that. But this was really, you know, seeing how watching it unfold and beginning to experience somebody whose life really was changed by a show that is all about representation and hearing the emotion in her voice in that cultural moment of saying, this is why this is important for a black child to see me succeeding right now. It was really powerful. So I think that is the, the, yeah, that's the one that I that will always stick with me as hearing the emotion in, in Jada's voice right after she won. And Jada Essence Hall, you know, out of the the recent years, you know, they're all incredible. They are all incredible. She really does stand out as one of the most talented and most loved recent winners. Like she really she is kind of flawless. <laughs> she has it so all. Funny. She is hilarious. Jada can make me laugh like no other queen can. Besides maybe Trixie and Katya, Jada, every fucking thing that comes out of her mouth, whether it's just like, you know, if we're just like chilling before an interview, like on video and stuff the other day, we did this. I don't know if you saw this game that we did with them, the Emmys trivia. She was just, she had her wig and we're not even shooting. And she literally has this little bob wig and she is turning it in all these different directions on her head and it, it that wig became 12 different wigs in the span of 30 seconds and i could not breathe i was laughing so hard she's just she's so funny she's erotic i'm neurotic <laughs> uh, do you have any tea on the next on um, the upcoming season of ew binge the podcast that everyone should be listening to oh we're trying we're trying um it, it, it yes we are we are you will be the first to know when uh, there will be a new episode. I am hoping, um, I, you know, EW's binge has been so fun. And Drew, I am so thankful for your support. Truly, you, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, you are like the first and so far only person who has ever slid into my DMs and been like, I'm a fan of EW's binge. So. I just can't believe that that's true though like it's such a good podcast and i just yeah the fact that that is the case is um is shocking to me but it's an it's an honor to be your only fan joey and (laughs) hopefully i'll be the first of of many I'm getting there. I'm kind of 45% yeah, there Andy, so in this progress. We can't yeah. not, we're not saying fuck Andy's drag. We are, uh-uh, no. Andy is, Andy is my, my second fan. You can be my second fan. <laughs> oh my God, I finally beat him in something. Um, no, but I think that, look, obviously the past 
couple of years, year and a half, have been really, really taxing on all of us. Um, we're still in lockdown here in Sydney um, as Miss Miss Delta continues to work. Um, but the... <laughs> Very good. And shout oh out God. to Delta Work, one of my shout all-time Delta Work. So Delta Work. Yeah, we love um, you, Delta. But the, the EW Binge podcast has been just such a lovely little treat that has kind of sporadically come and in, dropped into my podcast app um sort of as and when and so yeah I was I was really really um you know I was so taken by it that I had to I had to slide into your dms Joey and tell you how much I was enjoying it um and um and that's why it's been such a treat to have you on not only once but twice our, our <laughs> nice. drag race all-star um back 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 again. Back, 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 back again. <laughs> can we make it a third will we make it a third go I wonder if anyone listened to this thinking, gosh, they seem really low energy considering they're with this new guest. Well, it's because we know Joey and we've already spent multiple hours with him and this is, you know, this Completely is... bored by me. This is just, you're over it. You're completely over it. I'm okay, sorry. Okay, we get it. You love Drag Race. We got it. Yeah. <laughs> the fandom's toxic. Okay, we know. Um, no, but I, I've, I've got to say, Joey, it was such a shame to have lost the, the last step, but... It takes a lot for you to take, again, an evening out of your schedule to come and chat to us about something that we love so much. I think that Drag Race is something that has really kind of uh, punctuated mine and Andy's friendship. We talk about it on the podcast all the time. And so to have you, our professor of mm. um, of Drag Race, come and speak to us again. And you know what? Yeah, we went over stuff that we, we spoke about previously, but we also covered new territory. And it was really, yeah. really, um, you know, just as enlightening as our first conversation. And we knew that that would be the case. And that's why we wanted to re-record because you're just so easy to talk to and articulate and just knowledgeable about this huge behemoth of culture a queer culture um and yeah it's just our pleasure to have had you on again and i really appreciate the time that you took to to join us again well thank you so much it really does mean a lot to hear you say that i'm always happy to come on and talk to you guys and i love that you think i have a schedule i mean my schedule is sitting in bed and eating my gluten-free chicken nuggets and that's Mm, what you're interrupting which i guess is more important than interrupting anything else but i guess also now would be a good time to tell you that um this whole thing hasn't recorded (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Look at that nervous laughter. Right. That nervous <laughs> Bitch, laughter. Until I see until I see that <laughs> file drop in my Google Drive, I am yeah. I'm not going to believe it. I need to see the $100,000 drop into my account and then I'll believe it. <laughs> well, there might be some taxes taken there's out. There's some tax, there's some tax. <laughs> Yes, no, this is recording. I assure you it is recording. Jerry, maybe we'll have you on in the future. Um, you know, not anytime soon. We'll let the dust settle. But maybe we'll have you back to talk about one of your musical queeros. So, you know, we'd love to have you on to cover an album or an artist that meant a lot to you on your queer journey. Because that's what we do here at All Fixation when we're not just gas-bagging about drag. So that would be really great to have you on in the future. No, you only get two times and you already wasted them both. (laughs) Is it because I came out as a one-time internet troll? Are we still going to be friends after this? (laughs) I was vulnerable. (laughs) Maybe you could come back as choreographer. 
Let's just say oh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, I'll be the choreographer. My, my journey has finished, as Laganja Estranja says, and I will only come back as a choreographer. So if you guys need choreography, which, Drew, I don't know what is on your wall behind you. You Ooh. need to put that on and do some choreography and that yeah. little purple featheredness. The, I don't know what that is. That's the tip of the iceberg in this room. Um, Joey where can people find you what have you got to plug give it to us you can find me at Joey Nolfi J-O-E-Y-N-O-L-F-I on Instagram and Twitter and unfortunately now TikTok as well Um, and EW.com slash Drag Race where all of our Drag Race coverage is and what do I have a plug coming up oh i should be starting up my instagram live series again queening out with interviews we try to do that when the main season of drag race is out of season so um yeah that should be coming up through the end of the year i'll be doing weekly instagram lives hopefully i strongly recommend um everyone checking out joey's instagram live with the mother uh, that is Michelle Visage. That's a really, really lovely oh, discussion between one. two icons and legends. And I think I said this last time, but Michelle oh, is one of the very, the few queens, the few stars who I would just be shaking with nerves to meet, but not from like intimidation, just because of how amazing she is. So shout out to Michelle Visage. Yeah. And check out that interview. How did it take us an hour and 20 minutes of talking about Drag Race to mention Michelle Visage? Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Actually, it's 119, 41, 42, oh, oh. 43. That's how you know I'm recording. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's made me, that's reassured me a little bit, actually, Joey. Thanks for that. Um, but shout out to iconic Virgo and mother of all drag queens, Michelle Visage. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you would like to follow us, you can. We're at Oral Fixation Podcast on Instagram. You can email us. We're oralfixationpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me. I'm at With All Drew Respect on Instagram. Andy is at Andrew. Do you think you are? You can check out our website. <laughs> Do you like that one, Joey? You can check yes. out our website. It's oralfixationpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at oralfixpod, which is queer. We're on Facebook and you're probably exhausted, but write us a review, subscribe, rate us. <laughs> Do that first. <laughs> Do that first. Uh, yeah. In all seriousness, it helps people find us better. So um, that would be much appreciated. Joey, thank you once again so much. Thank, 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 thank you again. Um, and I can't wait to have you on as um, a choreographer. It's going to translate really well in podcast form, I think. Practice your steps. Get to step in. Come on. <laughs> let's go. All right, boys. I'm going to go and watch uh, the Snatch Game from uh, Season 2, starring our All-Star 6 winner, but more importantly, starring Jessica Wilde as RuPaul. Ooh, trust. Over and out. <laughs> more importantly. <laughs>